This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I was immediately thinking of this phrase from Oscar Wilde, the truth of masks. There's a sense when you're writing a dramatic monologue or adopting a persona that something about it must speak to you because otherwise you wouldn't be writing it. Or if you did try to write it, it wouldn't actually work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Poetry Review podcast for the winter 2016 issue. My name is Sarah Howe, and I was the co-editor of that particular issue. I'm joined here in the studio today by Jane Yeh. Jane has two poems in the latest issue of the review, A Short History of Patience and Rabbit Empire. And we're going to uh, hear her reading those and we're going to chat about them a little bit too. Jane, could you give us a sense of uh, how these new poems fit in with the arc of your work? It's been a few years now since The Ninjas came out. Um, How far are you into the new project? Well, ever since The Ninjas came out, I've been working on a next collection It's supposed to be published in 2019, but I've actually already postponed it twice, unfortunately, because I'm such a slow writer, I guess. And I guess also like the way a lot of people find is, you know, after they finish one collection, they sort of are looking for something different to do. Or for a little while, you kind of write the same type of poems that you were writing before, but you actually want to move on. It just has to come somehow or other. So, um... These two poems that are in Poetry Review, I guess, to me, feel more different from the kind of poem I was writing in The Ninjas. I guess I've just been trying to do some things a little bit differently since then. And what's the difference for you? I know that, for example, the shift between Marabou, um, your first book, which came out in 2005, and The Ninjas was um, one that was characterized by a change in voice almost, that many of the poems in Marabou had been in the first person, whereas in your next collection you shifted to the third. These poems in the magazine are a, are a mixture of both, but what's the nature of that difference for you as the poet? Even from the beginning, really, I didn't write that many poems that were sort of autobiographical or even based on like my personal experiences. So a lot of times when I was writing in the first person, it would be, you know, what's called dramatic monologue or persona, where the I or the we that is speaking the poem is another character, not me. I don't know if it was just sort of getting older or what, but, you know, I used to write some poems that are sort of what is usually called lyric, lyric poetry, where you're writing in the first person and it's about your thoughts and feelings and stuff like that. And, you know, of course, that's the way most people usually start writing poetry, like when they're teenagers, which is what I did, because you have all these feelings that you want to express and stuff. But um, I gradually sort of really lost any kind of lyric I voice. So I was doing a lot of these dramatic monologues. And then Besides that, I was actually sort of struggling. Like when I would try to write a poem that was in a kind of lyric eye, it would sort of start out okay and then just go nowhere. So I guess somehow or other, I did switch to writing in a lot of third person when I was writing The Ninjas. It still is from my perspective, but because it's couched in the third person, it's sort of different. And also because I guess I I was writing sort of about these kind of characters like witches or ninjas or ghosts, but, you know, not in their own voices, like, so thus writing about them in the third person, like kind of reporting on them. 
I think one of the most delightful aspects of your books is the hugely varied cast of characters you bring to bear and indeed bring to life in your work. How do you come across these <laughs> extraordinary creatures and, and so on? Is it from your your own reading? or? I mean, I guess it's just sort of from absorbing all the things that I come across in my normal life, pretty much. Like in my first collection, there were more poems that were sort of set in the 17th century or about 17th century things. You know, that was because a lot of them were written during uni or after uni, and that was kind of my area of study since I've been out in the world and not a student anymore. A lot of what I come across is TV and films and stuff you read on the internet and kind of general pop culture. Um, one of my friends is the poet Stephen Burt, mm. and he wrote this poem a long time ago that was called something like Scenes from the next episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. And I remember I was really jealous because I thought how great a title and concept for a poem that would be. And so that's kind of a thing that I sort of like writing, even though I haven't actually done that really. Well, actually, that would be the perfect segue, I think, to reading Rabbit Empire, this talk of film and pop culture, though I, I guess uh, the extent to which David Lynch <laughs> counts as pop culture versus high art is maybe an interesting conversation in itself. But yeah, would you mind reading um, this poem after Lynch? Yeah, it's called Rabbit Empire, and it was commissioned for a project that was run by Rachel Long. She commissioned four poets to write poems in responding in some way to the David Lynch film, Inland Empire. And we just had free reign for what we wanted to do. So this is what I came up with. Rabbit Empire. In the empire of the rabbits, the long-eyed girl is king. The afterlife is like a movie, edited and full of plot holes. On a leatherette settee, we twitch our ears coquettishly. We think she loves us. Green walls will with a green dress chime. The angora of our hearts softly blows whenever she draws near. The door to the past only opens one way, into a hotel room. You can't turn it off like TV. It's swish to nibble on a cream cracker while she goes about in heels like a bachelorette on speed. At the picnic, the grass is so green we could cry. The language of the dead sounds like static or a weird encyclopedia. When the phone rings, it's for her. Our eyes light up in the dark. She wakes up in Kansas, trailing memories like babies. Roses fall through the air like a sweet shop exploding. In an earlier interview, you described your poems once as being a little bit like um, snow globes or shoebox dioramas, which I thought was a, a rather perfect metaphor them, this idea that your poems often create these vivid, miniaturized, self-contained worlds with their own logic almost, but that also have this technicolor quality. And that made me think of um, the poem you've just read and, and the sort of strangeness of its imagery, which I guess is colored maybe slightly by the edge of surrealism in Lynch, but is also something I associate with your work in general. Could you say a little bit more about maybe the surreal and the image in your poems? I guess in this poem and in some of these newer poems, I've been trying to 
put images together in a series that are maybe more surreal or more disjunctive, kind of like in a conscious way, just because I've always felt the way that I write is almost too logical or too predictable is the wrong word, obviously. But, you know, like I would write in my first collection, Marabou, I had a poem that was called Double Wedding and it was set in the 17th century. And it has these descriptions of like the clothes and jewelry that these women in the this royal wedding are wearing. And I still like that poem, but it's all sort of of a piece or, you know, it kind of follows along in this way that is not exactly realistic, but, you know, sensible. Whereas I guess maybe now I'm trying to do things that are a little bit more unpredictable or just surprising. But at the same time, obviously, I want them to hold together and not just seem completely random. And in that earlier book, you were very interested in writing poems, not your usual ekphrastic poems, but poems that take paintings as launching points or that are slightly slanted in their relationship to describing or voicing works of visual art. So now you're you're writing in relation to a film here. Um, is ekphrasis something that you're still interested in as a writer? Yeah, I am definitely. Again, most of these poems have not been published yet, but I have a number of new poems that are responding to paintings and installations, but that are contemporary rather than old masters or older, which is what I had done in the past. So I'm definitely still interested in that. And also, again, especially things that aren't just paintings. So, you know, like installations, which are 3D and have all these different objects in them, usually, or films or videos that artists make. They seem kind of quite interesting to try to capture or respond to in a poem. What you've just described sounds like a shift from a fascination with the static image to something more three-dimensional, maybe that you move around in time or that Mm. moves in front of you. How interesting. The other thing that I find very striking about Rabbit Empire, the poem you just read, is its first-person plural voice, the fact that it happens in this slightly unsettling we. Unsettling maybe because we're so unused to poems narrated in that particular voice. Um, It makes me think of Sylvia Plath's Mushrooms, say. What is it like trying to inhabit the consciousness of not just one rabbit, but but many? It's funny because as soon as you started asking about the use of the we, I thought of that Sylvia Plath poem because I read it when I was a teenager and I did, like, obviously that was the first poem I'd ever seen that had this we voice in a dramatic monologue. So that did always stick with me. I find it interesting, again, just because it is less usual, but also, again, maybe this is why, not intentionally, but why I find it hard to write the lyric I, even the I in the dramatic monologue, somehow it just starts seeming so, you know, like I, 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 me, me, me. I do like the idea, it's sort of a cheat, really, but the idea that this we voice is like collective of this whole group of people or things or animals. One of the extraordinary things about your approach to writing character in poems is the fact that in your historical narratives, you're not afraid of anachronism. And equally, when you're writing animals, you're not afraid of anthropomorphizing. So there is this 
element that comes through, whether we call it human, whether we call it personal? I mean, to what extent is it a personal energy that feeds into these personae poems? And what's the usefulness of the mask for you? It's funny because, again, like when you started asking this question, I was immediately thinking of this phrase from Oscar Wilde, the truth of masks. And, you know, he talks about the mask in other places as well. This idea that uh, when you wear a mask, it actually reveals your true identity in some way, even Mm. though it technically is concealing your identity. I guess, you know, obviously in my writing, I'm not sitting there thinking about it or theorizing about it, but um, there's a sense when you're writing a dramatic monologue or adopting a persona that something about it must speak to you because otherwise you wouldn't be writing it. Or if you did try to write it, it wouldn't actually work. Again, I don't sit there and think like, oh, this ghost represents the fear of the dead or something like that. Like I'm just sort of instinctively drawn to writing about different subjects. Of course, if you wanted to analyze them or you were like a critic or something, you could come up with the things that are common to them, maybe. You've mentioned Wilde now and um, also Stephen Burt. I wondered what your influences might have been in, in creating this style. I know you've spoken in the past about your admiration for the American poet Lucy Brock Broido. I often find myself thinking of Elizabeth Bishop when I read your poems. Who are your guiding stars? It's funny because I guess people do say Bishop, maybe in part because I'm an American woman. But to mm. me, I, I've never been a fan of Bishop. And obviously, I had to study her when I was younger. So I know quite a lot of her work. But it doesn't really appeal to me. I mean, it's true, like definitely my biggest influence for a long time was Lucy Brockbroido, who um, I'm always hoping more people will actually read. And again, of course, going back to my teenage years and young adulthood, Sylvia Plath was a huge influence. In recent times, I guess, people that I'm actually sort of trying to imitate in some ways or learn from their techniques. Um, One of my friends, but even apart from that, like she's a really amazing poet called Amy Woolard, who's also American. I really admire Sophia Sinclair, whose first book just came out, Ocean Vuong. Oh, Timothy Donnelly, who's also, I think, probably influenced quite a lot by Lucy Brockbroido, but I also really admire his work. A lot of the names you just mentioned were, I suppose, American. And to what extent do you feel like you are still connected with poetic culture over in the States, which is where you're from originally, though you've been based in the UK for a long time now. How do you find yourself in your reading and writing straddling the Atlantic? It's really because of the internet making things available easily that I'm able to read lots of American poems and sort of keep up with what's going on over there, thankfully. I don't really have any connections there anymore. Not that I really did before anyway, in the, in terms of like the poetry world or magazines or things like that. Maybe it's just because there's more people or the general currents or things like that. But um, I find a lot of the younger American poets really exciting. And so I, I like to keep up with what they're writing and producing and talking about even. Oh, like another one that's who's also who writes really good essays in addition to poems, um, Morgan Parker. I mean, she's been kind of well-known for a while now, but I just sort of learned about her recently. So, In terms of your training as a poet, you studied both at the Iowa Writers' Workshop 
and also here in the UK at Manchester Metropolitan. What was the difference between those two approaches and do they still feed into your writing now, the sort of American way and the British way, if it's possible to simplify? I guess to me the main differences were the atmosphere and the number of students even. Like at Iowa, it's kind of this hothouse atmosphere of people that are very ambitious and kind of competitive, even your own friends. And there's also, in a way, relatively quite a lot of you. Like it's a two-year program and they take 25 poets each year. So that's kind of the intake. When I went to Manchester, most of the students, like at most MA programs, especially in this country, were doing fiction. So I think maybe there were three of us doing poetry and a couple sort of left over who were doing part-time. So it was very much smaller. And, you know, there wasn't that sense of like, competition or trying to get ahead or something. It was just people that wanted to write and study poetry, not that they were going to necessarily make a career out of it or try to become like professional poets. Thank you, Jane. I I was wondering if you would mind reading now A Short History of Patience, which is a poem I like very, very much. And it has this sort of list structure a little bit like many of the poems in The Ninjas. Okay. Maybe I'll read it and then talk about it a little bit. That would be great, thanks. A short history of patience. The soft chiffon of the river as it turns out of view. The woodpeckers stutter saying, wish you were here. The birch branches tangled like wires overhead, sending mixed messages to the birds. Baby, I could go out on a limb and say the evening's smoky eye draws near. The floorboards creak like a harpsichord played wrong. The kettle rumbles with anticipation, then shuts itself off. Honey, without you, it's cold as a warthog's bare bottom or the draft that slips in under the door. Without you, I'm lonesome as a cricket in a jam jar, chirping till all the air runs out. Won't you come home, says the dustpan to the wandering broom. Catch as catch can, say the weeds to the scythe. Ryegrass spreading through the yard like an open secret. The blue line of the horizon like an eyelid closed. I guess you were asking about the sort of listing quality. One thing with this particular poem, I started out writing it a little bit under the rules of an exercise that I made up to use with my students. And it was actually based on um, this poem by Martha Kaposch that's in her first collection. The poem's called Finding My Bearings. It's written with a lot of sentence fragments, and that actually really interested me a lot because somehow until a few years ago, I kind of wrote everything in complete sentences in a poem, you know, almost as if it were a piece of prose, but broken up, obviously. Yeah, so I became really interested in the idea of sentence fragments and doing things with grammar or syntax. So I was sort of trying to write a bunch of sentence fragments at the beginning of this poem. So that's like the kind of list in a sense. In general, I guess I am interested in the technique of listing things. Again, I think I'm sort of imitating these other poets that I like who have used this technique. But also it's this way of kind of breaking up what to me I think of as like the way that I think a little bit too logically or in a in a kind of sequence that makes sense. So by breaking things up into lists, it allows me to jump around a little more. 
that idea of the fragment is a really interesting one because the mixed messages sent by the wires to the birds, there's a sort of scrambling of inputs in this poem, one of which is song or at least something musical. The intimacy of that almost bluesy address, the baby, the honey, but then also rhythmically something that seems a bit like a almost playground chant or nursery rhyme, something from deep childhood even. Yeah, what are the musical elements feeding into this poem? Are they just catching on the transom of consciousness? <laughs> Where are they from? That's interesting. Like, I never thought about it that way. Or it certainly wasn't conscious. I wouldn't say that I'm influenced by the blues or by song lyrics, really. I don't know. I mean, I guess in a way, the voice in this poem was me trying to imitate my friend Amy Woolard because she does use like baby or honey in poems sometimes. And it's a little bit putting on or trying to put on this kind of American sort of country-ish or slightly rural-ish voice that is not my natural voice, probably. Like when I mentioned the warthog, obviously that's kind of not really... The whole setting, like being sort of rural, to me is very actually foreign and basically made up. Thank you so much, Jane. That was really a pleasure talking to you. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast and for your really um, thoughtful and gracious comments about my work. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.